A village in Ireland, April 1912, a 17-year-old girl on the verge of womanhood, hesitant but hopeful, prepares to leave absolutely everything behind, including a boy she loves, to make a go of things in America. She'll join 13 other members of this village, a significant portion of people in this village in third-class cabins on Titanic, and she'll be one of the only from her village to survive This is Maggie Murphy, a character crafted with intrigue and precision by writer Hazel Gaynor. Through Maggie, we read a through line to our modern society via a parallel plot that involves her great-granddaughter. And we watch a woman process the breath-stealing grief of trauma and finally letting the next generation in. What makes Gaynor's book, The Girl Who Came Home, even more compelling is that it's the gorgeous fleshing out of a very true story. 14 passengers from Adderghoul, County Mayo, Ireland, boarded Titanic together at Queenstown, April 11th, 1912. Only three survived. One of them was a young woman named Annie Louise McGowan. She had a desire to return to America. She had been born there and her family had moved back to Ireland when she was very young. She was now 17. And so she wrote to her paternal aunt, a woman named Catherine McGowan, her father's younger sister, who worked at a boarding house in Chicago. Catherine returned home to Ireland from Chicago to visit and to chaperone her niece and others interested in making a go of it across the Atlantic. This was the Adderkull 14. Disembarking Carpathia, Annie, who was one of only the three who survived, She is said to have later related, a sailor said to her, look, you can see the Statue of Liberty. Take a good look at the other side because you will never go back there. She responded that she never would, never wanting to set foot on another boat or ship as long as she lived, which by all accounts, she never did. But does Maggie? I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is The Girl Who Came Home with author Hazel Gaynor. guys. I'm going to get you right to the interview, I promise. Just a couple of very quick things. First, I want to say I am excited that these book club episodes are kind of growing their own legs. They are some of my most popular episodes by far. And I, I mean, talk about starting with, you know, all stars, the three book club episodes that I've done so far. I have been so fortunate that these amazing authors have agreed to come on the podcast. Sometimes I pinch myself that all this is happening. It's wonderful. So I just want to thank you for listening. And I want to say, if you have have suggestions for books that I should do for these book club episodes, please let me know. I will definitely be continuing them. I also want to mention and remind you that next month's is 
Ben Rains's The Last Slave Ship, and it will be a companion episode to a full episode I'm doing on the ship, the Clotilda, the story of the Clotilda. And that is the very first side episode I'm doing on another ship. So I'm really excited about that. So that last week of March, the Clotilda episode will probably go live, followed by early April with the book club episode on the book. I believe the book has entered the New York Times bestseller list, which it completely should. It's getting a lot of amazing press. It's an important book. It's a such a well-researched and but also just written in a style that is so personal and invested and brings the story of the slave ship, the Clotilda, to life. So I even if I weren't doing these episodes, I would still be on this podcast recommending that you read Ben Rains's book. So I'm excited about that. All right. Hazel and I sat down a couple of weeks ago and had a lovely conversation. I've been sitting on <laughs> the interview because this I wanted this to be the book club episode for March. And one of the reasons why that's really important is that March 2022, when this episode is releasing, if you're listening to it in the future... Hi, future. Uh, but the but this month marks the 10th anniversary of The Girl Who Came Home, which, and I didn't realize this until right before she and I chatted, was actually self-published in 2012 and then was so popular, obviously, it was picked up by a major press. So that's, <laughs> that's quite a story and uh, well-deserved because it is an incredible book and it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. And Hazel is celebrating her 10th anniversary then as a writer of historical fiction. She, as you probably know, is an international New York Times, Irish Times, lots of places, <laughs> best-selling author of many uh, works of historical fiction. She's been quite prolific since 2012. Her most recent novel was set in China during World War II. It was published as The Bird in the Bamboo Cage in the UK, Ireland, Australia, and as When We Were Young and Brave here in the US and in Canada. We talk a little bit about it in the interview, but her books are all set in, you know, slightly different time periods, largely between late 19th and, and early into early mid 20th century, but her characters are just written so relatably and 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 it is stunning how these characters through turns of events, you know, walk through these historic moments we think about, whether it's the Savoy in London or whether it's, I, I really like her book, The Cottingly Secret, which is about the, you may know about it, the sort of infamous fairy stories in Ireland in the early 20th century and these young girls who claim to be seeing fairies. Just such a delightful array of moments and themes that she brings to life. And I can tell by talking to Hazel that she obviously is also a historian and she holds the stories that she uncovers very close to her heart. And when she's inspired by a set of historic circumstances to write a novel about them, it's with reverence. All right, I'm going to get to the interview. You want to hear it. Uh, I think we mentioned it in the interview, but make sure to go to Hazel's website, hazelgaynor.com, and make sure to sign up for her newsletter. She's also on Twitter. She's also on Instagram, easy to find in those places. All right, guys, enjoy.
All right. Hi there, Hazel Gaynor. So lovely to have you on the podcast. I um, I probably mentioned this in an email to you, but I did an episode on Titanic in fiction, and it's really been one of the most popular episodes uh, downloaded uh, since I started the podcast. And the book that I read to sort of get myself in the mindset of Titanic historical fiction was The Girl Who Came Home and it was my first foray into it. And it was just a lovely experience. And so I think, you know, I'll go on to read more Titanic historical fiction, but it really will always be a wonderful gem in my mind uh, as the first one that I read. I always like to just start with the question of how an author came to Titanic. And I think because your book is historical fiction, that I think that'll be a... You know, maybe a different and more dynamic answer even than we typically have on the show. Um, so, you know, how did you get to historical fiction? And then how did you get to Titanic? Did you grow up, you know, with the stories? Is it something that you've always been interested in? Or was it more of kind of a moment that that brought you to it? Uh, well, hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me um, on the podcast. Such a fascinating subject. And I think the quick answer is it's all of those things. You know, it's a combination of as many of your listeners um, would would recognize, I'm sure that that sort of fascination with this iconic ship, this fascinating historic event, and I I would say I've been interested in Titanic probably since my teenage years. And when I've looked back at that, I've realized that that coincided. Giving away my age here, um, that coincided with the discovery of the wreck of Titanic. And I must have seen or heard some news coverage of that and seen some of the footage. And I think mm -hmm. for me, of course, I knew about Titanic, this extraordinary tragedy of this enormous, beautiful ship and the, the unimaginable tragedy that unfolded. And yet then suddenly we have a physical wreck to look at. And I think for me, that just sparked something. It was like, oh, okay, this isn't just a distant historic event we can actually see this ship now in real time and I think that really lit a fire for me um but many many years later and I think these things often percolate don't they I think as a writer I've learned over the years that really the seed of an idea can be brewing for many years and yes you know I wrote about the Titanic for my debut novel so talk about without having too bad a pun, jumping in at the deep end. I mean, this is such an enormous, enormous event and, and that so many people have researched, have such um, family connections to. I didn't have that. I don't have a relative who was on Titanic, as so many readers I've encountered since writing the book have, and I'm just so intrigued by that connection. To me, it was really just that that combination of incredible history and a and such an incredible compelling starting point for a novel which takes a real event and then allows your imagination to fill in i think some of the gaps you know we we've learned more and more over the years about the people on board obviously the 1997 movie james cameron epic gave us a really visual treat in terms of what mm -hmm. that ship looked like. To me, I'm always interested in the ordinary people. Who were the ordinary? We knew about the Astors. We knew about the wealthy millionaires. 
What about the ordinary person who just ended up on that ship? Didn't know anything really about it, hadn't any plans to impress their friends. It was just a vehicle for moving from A to B. And that's what I really was fascinated by as a novelist. And living in Ireland, obviously where Titanic was built, I was interested in the Irish experience, you know, Mm -hmm. the people in steerage, who were they? Why were they on it? And what was their story? And that was really how I came to write the story of my fictional young woman, Maggie Murphy, which is based on a group from a county of um, in Mayo, um, a parish of Lahadan, and collectively this group of 14 friends and family who left together. And that was my that was my jumping off point to tell this story. Yeah. And that is, I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's the Adderghoul. Adderghoul 14. Yeah. And I think it's, I, you know, what you just said really resonated with me because I, I think what I've realized doing the podcast is that a lot of listeners and people that are interested for a lifetime in Titanic, and I hear from people every week, you know, it's amazing when I started this podcast, I knew I would hear from a few people, but I hear from just so many people every week or email or Instagram that they want to, part of being interested in it for a lifetime is that emotional connection of trying to understand what it would have felt like. I think specifically with Titanic, it's a feeling that sort of obsesses people that mm-hmm. like to read about Titanic. And I that's why I think historical fiction is a really good entree into writing about it, understanding, because it's one of those events that we kind of want to put ourselves into, which is odd and strange. And I'm sure a psychologist would have a field day yeah. with that, you know, but it's, um, you know, our, our human brains like to work things out that way. That's why I think it's a great entree. So how did you, did you sort of stumble upon the story of the Adderall 14? And, you know, my, my question, I think that maybe a lot of readers who don't know Irish history, the tangent or a connected question there would be, you know, how did you stumble upon them? And then at that moment in time in 1912, why would, you know, a group like that be leaving Ireland? And Mm -hmm. what, you know, like you said, they're getting on a ship that they don't know anything about. They they're leaving because, I mean, if you're, if you're leaving a place that you love, you know, there's probably, (laughs) probably a lot of, you know, often sad reasons uh, Mm -hmm. behind that. And your book explores some of that. Um, But yeah, how did you stumble upon them? And, and what, what do you think their sort of emotions were as they left in 1912 mm. in that specific scenario? Yeah. And and again, you know, I think Titanic has so many layers, doesn't it? And and I think I really, I felt that we'd been told the story of the wealthy um, a number of times and particularly through the movie. And, and it was those scenes um, in steerage class where the Irish woman is telling a story of Tin and Oog to the little girl, her daughter. Yeah. And I, there was something in that moment of a mother consoling her child, knowing they weren't getting out of here. I think I, I just, I hadn't quite connected Ireland to Titanic so clearly. Of course, I knew it was built at the Harland and Wolfe shipyard in Belfast, but I hadn't really understood that Queenstown in County Cork, now known as Cove, was Titanic's last port of call before setting off across the Atlantic. So this is where people... This is where fate happened. People got off Titanic at Queenstown mm-hmm. and the last people got on. So to me, there was this really poignant sense of story. And that's when I went looking and actually was really surprised to discover this story of a group of 14 
friends and family from Adigul in, in County Mayo who all left together. And what was so heartbreaking about that group was only three of them survived. And this was the biggest loss of life proportionately from one location. And and when I read that account, I I saw it from two sides. So I saw, as you just said, you know, why were people leaving? Uh, you know, why were people leaving Ireland at that period in history? But also I wanted to know how does a small parish in Ireland with a significant group of people having just left, how do they hear that something like this has happened? Yeah. And how does that affect the people left behind? And that really unlocked this whole different story of Titanic to me. And it was almost a story of what happened next. So I think, as I say, you know, a lot of what we talk about is all of what happened before, you know, the maiden voyage, the build-up, the interior, how ornate it all was, these amazing... All the decor, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The, mm-hmm. the, the style, the elegance of the era, the very wealthy and all of the scandal and gossip that was going on around those people. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of don't know what happened next. Of course, we know about the Carpathia, but this whole other story of what happened to survivors when they reached New York, we tend to leave them on the Carpathia and they all lived happily ever after. Not the, not the case. And not that's okay. where the concept of the girl who came home came from. You know, what happened to a young survivor who's lost everything and everyone and what's happening back in her small Irish hometown who have how have they even heard this happened? And, and have they in a, yeah. in a delayed and and then like you said to be such that fourteen would have been such a large percentage yeah. of their entire you know community, community absolutely yeah so yeah. every home was touched by this and you know to answer your question of why were people leaving of course there was this sense of bettering their lives so often what happened is some family members had emigrated to America you know, chasing the dream, trying to improve their lot in life and were sending letters home or even coming back home. And that's what had happened. One of the Adigal group had been to America, had seen what was possible there and had come home and almost recruited everyone, you know, sort of convincing them this was such a great opportunity. There was so much money to be made. There were so many opportunities. And that's why this group of 14 ultimately ended up traveling together. Um, And I inspired based one of my characters on her Um, and this sense of you know leaving for a greater a greater life and being able to then send money home to the people left behind so what a you know what an amazing set of circumstances and and as I say just happened to be sailing on Titanic could have been on any ship um Titanic itself was delayed wasn't it because of the coal strike and there were so many as there often is with a tragic tragedy like this so many small pieces of the jigsaw had to all align for everything to happen as it did and I just found this story of this group so heartbreaking so compelling and then the then the mind starts whirring and I went to the I went to the parish where they have an amazing 
That's what I was, that was actually going to be my next question. Yeah. Is, <laughs> yeah that's perfect. Perfect. That way. Yeah. Have tell me, yeah, I was just going to ask, have you been there and what the sort of um, memorial kind of process has been there? Do they, I know they have a Titanic society. They have an article. They do. They do. Society. Yeah. And that, that was really where I first started to learn about them. So I got in touch with, um, again, just members of the community, some of whom have uh, connections back to that original group. Um, and just this sense of keeping history alive and keeping the memory of those people alive. Um, and they had written an amazing book, whereas I got a lot of the, de- the detail and facts. And I went to um, Lahadan to Adagul and met with some members of the Historic Society, went to look at this incredible memorial. It's absolutely stunning. The setting is typical rural island, very green, surrounded by mountains, um, and these beautiful bronze statues of of people leaving, you know, they're leaving oh, wow. um, and looking at, um, you know, sort of the, the bow of the ship, that, that iconic mm-hmm. image. Um, and it really set something in me, you know, it was like, this isn't just, a, these are real people I'm writing about. I felt a real sense of responsibility to do their story justice. There's beautiful stained glass windows in the church. They have a ceremony every April to commemorate. There's a bell ringing at the time that Titanic sank. They leave lights on. It's a very Irish thing, this sense of homecoming. There's a a light in a window of one of the old homesteads. And it's this sense of you are always welcome home. If you leave, you are always welcome home. And, of course, 11 of them never did. Didn't make it. And that's the and that's such a, and you know, for listeners that have read the book, I think it's okay to do it either way. But if you have already read the book, then you know, you know, that's, I mean, obviously, you know, I don't want to give anything away if you haven't, but the <laughs> title, you know, it's such a, yeah, I mean, the process of homecoming is tied in inexplicably with grief in your book yeah. and also hope. And that's a huge, I think, part of the kind of cultural history embedded in your book is that sense of homecoming what and, and also just what does home mean and when you have to leave you know but i think that's a really one of the most beautiful sort of sentiments in the book when you when you write and you know obviously you've written quite a bit in this general area era i mean you have you know several books that are kind of stretched between right about 1880 to the 1920s is this kind of is this your favorite era to <laughs> dissect and why and like what is your you know strategy when you're researching I've never you know written historical fiction I I'm so enamored of the process can you describe a little bit of your process how do you start do you just start by doing research and sort of be a historian first and then go from there like what if you would share with listeners just a little bit of what your process is and and how it does it get I imagine it does get quite emotional sometimes when you're researching some of the real you know people that are inspiring these stories so yeah oh my goodness and I mean especially with with an event like this and and as I say being able to go to almost walk in the footsteps and that I think that was really important to me as a as a debut novelist I mean as I said such an enormous subject to tackle. I don't know what I was thinking to be perfectly honest. First. <laughs> it was just yeah. this sense of I had to tell this story. I I was so fascinated by it. And the more I the more I researched, the more fascinated I became, the more I found out I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it's what it, it's what you said there, a little bit of being a historian first and then a novelist second. And then sort of balancing those two things as you start writing. So it's it's a sense of understanding the time and the place and 
what was happening in Ireland at at that period, for example, you know, why were people leaving? What were communities like? How did a group travel, you know, half the distance of Ireland? What, how physically did they do that? How did they buy tickets? All the practicalities, um, you know, I get so obsessed about detail and, and then sort of bigger picture, you know, what did this mean uh, for the families in, in, in New York and across America waiting for their cousins, their sisters coming so excited to see them again. So there's all sorts of elements to a story like this. And and I think looking at the wider historic events that are going on as well, some of the political stuff, mm-hmm. it doesn't always come onto the page, but I think as a novelist, it's important to frame your book with what's just happened. So has has there just been a war, which of course there hadn't re- before Titanic. But- <laughs> Partly why it's heading into a period of quite exactly. a quite a bit, yeah, tumultuous yeah. things ahead, which nobody knew at the time, and and I've often thought that's maybe partly why Titanic resonates with so many people because it was pre World War One, so this was a tragedy on the scale of which people hadn't quite seen um, for for a while since you know sort of the Crimean Wars and and events like that. And we were going to see lots, lots more of this. So I think it was this moment in time between the wars where this human tragedy, and like you say, you know, this fascination with what would I have done? Would I have left my husband? Would I have got into a lifeboat? Would I have panicked? Would I have been calm? Would I have been the one to help people to take someone's child? Mm -hmm. And we're fascinated, aren't we, with what would I do? And I think that's part of the question that's always going through my mind in the writing process. So when I have this sort of platform of research so I can be confident in in what I'm writing, I'm factually being correct. Yeah, if it's your foundation, you have to start with the foundation, basically. Exactly, exactly. And you, you can then step into the human story and that's where the imagination takes over what would I have done obviously we know there's so much information and I think in some ways that was brilliant when I was researching this novel but in other ways it was terrifying because where do you stop researching and not just write a factual account of a very well-known historic event and with Titanic there's there's never a place to stop or start really mm-hmm. not you know as you I know as you well know I mean people ask me I, you know I get I get emails from listeners all the time that will tell me about one specific you know story or person or thing they know and yeah. I you know I spend hours and hours and hours every week reading and I still am just learning something new every single day and oftentimes yeah. it's from listeners yeah no it's in and I think in your you know this leads me to I want to talk a little bit specifically about the book because that leads me to one of um actually a question that popped up right before we 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 hopped on which is I think I often am enamored of the stories of the crew and mm-hmm. I don't think that they get um that the stories just quite simply don't get told enough you know whether in you know nonfiction works on the ship or in historical fiction mm-hmm. and I think that your book does a really great job of you know, working in the crew story very directly. And in, in, in terms of, you know, just in a literary sense, in terms of how you, you and what is the steward's name? I, Harry. Harry, that's right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I, my brain's going eight different directions and I couldn't pull it. Um, 
Harry's story is, you know, in a literary sense, it's perfect, right? It's woven into everything that's happening on the ship. And he's able, and actually, I was talking about this with my guest on the fiction episode when we discussed the book, that it's perfect because he's able to go into all of these areas of the ship that a lot of passengers aren't. And so through the character of Harry in your book, you are, you know, you get to traverse the different parts of the ship and kind of learn them. It's kind of creating that geography. But I also think it's just really elemental for the book because we don't we don't really hear about the crew very often, which is sad because they were a huge portion of the people that were on board the vessel. And obviously, they're a huge percentage of the people that we lost. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about, I mean, talk about grief and, and, and you know, Southampton, for example, and how yeah. many families were affected. And that's, you know, oh, I mean, we could talk for hours about that. And, mm-hmm. and so what was, did you find any interesting nuggets when you were researching the crew? I mean, did you spend some time kind of researching the crew experience? And, you know, did you kind of stumble across anything that was interesting in terms of that? Because I think that was my really my favorite part of of the book is is Harry and and again I don't want to ruin anything. Really, you know, comes full circle full and circle. and so, yeah. yeah, I think you you know he he intrigued me very much. Oh, thank you. I loved Harry actually. I, I often thought he may have a little spin off <laughs> of his own. Oh, that would, be, that um, would be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting you picked up on his character because. And again, it was really a case of the more I, the more I read about Titanic, the more I understood just how, how many families, cities, towns, homes were affected. So again, it goes back to the ordinary person, you know, this young man stepping out to work as a steward on, on a ship, was he meant to be on Titanic or not? And this sense of sliding doors, you know, the fate that came into play for a lot of passengers on on Titanic and that's a big part of its story isn't it you know the people who just avoided this tragedy because they didn't pass the medical inspection or they left the the ship at Queenstown or they ended up winning a ticket as our fictional Jack Dawson does Mm -hmm. but it's it's people like Harry and that was exactly why I wanted to tell a, a, a character of the crew in order for us to traverse the ship because for me, part of reading a novel about Titanic is understanding its enormity and its layers and what was going on behind the scenes, if you like. So it was a way of us as a reader traveling around the ship and gave an insight into another strand of people whose lives were so enormously impacted. And as you say, Southampton is another key location that has huge legacy now attached to Titanic. And just um, grief. I mean, talk about the, I mean, we mentioned earlier the legacy of grief and homecoming. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we've heard, again, we've maybe heard more about some of the maids that were with the wealthy and, you know, some very well-known stories of of maids who did or didn't get off the ship and went on to have other incidents in their lives. But I didn't feel we'd heard much about male crew um, mm-hmm. and I had a very strong cast of female characters and I I just felt that balanced it and I it, sometimes a character just comes to you so Harry wasn't really directly inspired by any one crew member's story I read he's really a composite of all those young men who were heading off on 
you know, crewing a ship and, and to them it was a job, um, you know. And, and and oftentimes they were young men who really were, they were at the point in their life where they wanted to save, save money, send money to family. Yeah. Maybe, you know, weren't, a lot of them weren't married yet. It was that sort of, you know, like late teens, early twenties, you yeah. know, and I think, you know, times change, people don't, it's still sort of how you feel in that era of your life, I think now. Um, but that very hopeful sense of being so young and, mm-hmm having your whole life in front of you and and the whole world in front of you. And for a lot of these young men, maybe not what they were going to do forever, right? But for right now, it was a way to make money and provide for their families. So... Absolutely. And, you know, a sense of pride in the uniform. And like we see this scene with his mother sort of dusting off the lapels of the (laughs) uniform. And, you know, that... and, And I think for me, you know, with any historic historical novel that I've I've written or researched I think even within the enormity of a story like this or I've written now about both world wars I think it's those tiny details that often are what tell the story the best you know so we've Mm -hmm. this huge background but it's the little emotional human connections those small acts of kindness those moments of high drama and and that what do you do in that situation that really I think bring a historic event to life for people who may not have read a history book in that. And, and as you say, I think, as you described it so brilliantly, a, a great entree into a historic novel about this event, it lets you taste it, it lets you hear it and see it through mm-hmm. the eyes of characters. It's uh, sometimes slightly stuffy if you read about that in a history book. And that's what I love about historical fiction. You you bring colour and noise and and fabric into the hands of your reader and to me that's how I love learning about events from the past I want to follow it with a character I really care about um how do they get out of this situation what happens to people around them and it's all there isn't it it's all there in this real event um and and it's evergreen it's absolutely evergreen Mm -hmm. in its appeal it's multi-generational my children read so many beautiful children's stories about Titanic when I was sort of immersed in this you know they had no choice really but they've become, yeah, there's so they, many there's, there's so, so many, many. Yeah. I I tried to feature I mean, I talked about a few and I did the fiction episode but I couldn't even it would have been a four-hour podcast yeah. if I included everything but I so my daughter is five um and when I was kind of researching that episode I just got a bunch of them from the library and yeah. she you know but it is it is incredible like she latched on to a few of them and of course my kids I kind of have to know about Titanic. They don't have a choice, just as your kids <laughs> probably don't as well. Um, but she she did. But it, you know, there's something about the timelessness of it. And I, you know, my background is academic, and the real journey for me from moving towards, which I'm very grateful for, my very academic training. Um, but in my kind of journey, moving more towards doing this kind of thing. And I, I've in podcasting, I have found a very great balance of, you know, doing the research and then also being able to present things in a more casual, you know, it's just, it's, and, and getting to talk to people, like it's been the perfect balance for me. 
But part of my journey is that over the last few years, I've been reading a lot more historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think I will be honest and say that when I was more immersed in academic studies, I was one of those people that was a little skeptical sometimes of historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And but I hadn't read any. <laughs> and over the last few years, <laughs> it's I, in the way. I know, right? <laughs> Imagine that having, an, I, you know, I, I, I mean, you know. Yeah, don't, you know, try something before you form an opinion. Um, but you know, so that I just, you know, for me, that is a big sort of, you know, something I need to admit on my part is I had to think of prejudice against it. Yeah. And in the last three to five years, I have really started to read a lot of it. And it's actually now really my favorite uh, genre of That's fiction. What I hear a and lot. I, you know, I hear a lot from people who have sort of, uh, encountered a historical novel not intentionally and suddenly mm -hmm. this whole world of fiction is is opened up to them oh, and I, you know and I always say if a historical novel is well written the history should almost be invisible on the page you should forget your reading about a famous or not so famous historic event person place and you're just so invested in the story as any mm -hmm. good fiction will do it draws you away from your current day evening life and takes you somewhere different and I think that the historical novelist has to wear their research very lightly and it's it's all there but it it hopefully should never be obvious that you've no it's it's a very I think that's what I've realized too is that it takes a lot of skill um you know if you're an if you're an academic historian and you're writing I mean obviously that takes great skill as well mm -hmm. but there's often a, a little bit of a dryness in it um and you know in terms of writing historical fiction I got I, I really feel like I'm starting to understand the amount of skill it takes a writer like yourself because you do have to make that you have to do that research too but then you have to make it seamless just like you know when a you know James Cameron talks Talking about making his film, he always says, I had to use these special effects and create this world, but the special effects had to be invisible. You can't, yeah. you have to yeah. watch the movie and actually feel like you're there. You can't see the seams of all of the, you know, special visual effects yeah. trickery that I'm using. Yeah. And I feel like that sort of applies to what you just said mm -hmm. about historical fiction. And that's very true because you have to have the foundation of that research and then start there seamlessly. So, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, and and I think it I really in the last few years have come to realize how important historical fiction is for the average reader to be, you know, just to have the opportunity to immerse themselves. Mm -hmm. And I find that for me, if I read a historical fiction, I then, you know, might go pursue finding some nonfiction works about that event or about that place. Mm -hmm. And so it's all branches on the same tree yeah. and it all works together. So just, I mean, just to jump away from Titanic for a minute, but what, what are some of your, do you have any, you know, recommendations? If someone wants to jump into historical fiction and obviously, you know, beginning with your books, but also, <laughs> you know, what are, I mean, I love to just talk about, especially female writers. I love to just talk about female voices and kind of everyone share, you know, what their favorites are, yeah. but you know, what are some of your favorites that maybe got you into the genre? Are there any that you would you know, recommends kind of classics of the genre or ones that you've enjoyed over the years that have, you know, you feel maybe help make you a better writer and that sort of thing. As I just, Absolutely. I love recommendations. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I think we're always all learning. So I think we all have that apprenticeship 
through another author. I came to historic. I've always loved reading historical fiction. I've I studied history to A level at school. It's always been in me. I remember reading uh, the Other Boleyn Girl by Philippa Gregory. Uh, which this is many years before I turned my hand to writing. This is very much, I've been writing for 10 years now, had a totally different, very corporate business career before that. Yeah, I was reading a little, this is a second career for you, right? Second second coming, yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love that. And I remember reading that novel, um, which was since made into a movie, and it really just brought history to life for me in such a different way Mm -hmm. because suddenly you had, this unknown sister of Anne Boleyn talking to us almost as if she was there. It, it just had a different feeling to it. Similarly with Tracy Chevalier's The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Yeah. And again, that book, I just was totally swept away to mm-hmm. that era, that time, that place. From there, so those two authors, I think, were really a foundation stone of me figuring out how do you bring history to life on the page in in a novel form and and they everything they've written has uh, just really intrigued me more recently i think you've brilliant historical novelists writing particularly about the world wars they've been very much um in the bestseller lists for the last few years kate quinn is an amazing historical fiction mm-hmm. author the alice network and again brought an event like world war 1 to me as a reader and as a writer in a really palatable way I always thought the world wars were far too masculine and bloody and all about field battles and strategy and suddenly this whole other element to those events there is some incredible historical writing happening then you've somebody like Maggie O'Farrell who wrote Hamnet um, oh my goodness she's <laughs> she's one of my favorites incredible. yeah incredible incredible story of Shakespeare as a father rather than as a playwright and just bringing people into our lives in a totally different and very fresh way so it's a really exciting genre to be writing in and all genres have their ups and downs things are cool one minute and very not cool the next but within historical fiction you've even got eras that become you know really cool and people want to hear and learn more about them um, and as I said, I think an event like Titanic, it's evergreen. It's always there within would, whatever yeah. else is happening. Are we in 16th century Florence? Are we in the Second World War? Titanic is, and there are certain yeah. events and certain Never events that all stay. So I feel very fortunate, really, to have found my way into writing in this genre through that evergreen event, which is, it allows me to go and talk about it. 10 years later, you know. Well, I know I was about to say, and, and 10 years later, you know, I just discovered your book. Hopefully a lot of listeners will read, you know, be discovering mm. it for the first time. And I think that's the the beauty of it. And I, you know, I talked about this. I actually talk about this almost every time I have a guest on, which is it is evergreen because, you know, I can, I could have a hundred people on the podcast and our conversation would be different every single time. Yeah. You know, we, I had Gareth Russell on for a book club episode and we ended up talking about Ida and Isidore Strauss for 30 minutes of it, yeah. which, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I've got, you know, I've got, I mean, Gareth Russell's amazing author and yeah. historian and I'm, I can pick his brain for an hour and I we went there, but it yeah. was, but I had, you know, but my, um, I have my research background is in, you know, Southern history in the U S and so it, that really, you know, coincided and we talked about, 
the sort of background of, of him being, you know, blockade runner, the runner in the Confederacy. And that's, just, you know, right. so, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, Titanic, there are always 10,000 directions that, that you can go in. Yeah. But I think, I think with, with your book, and I think listeners will, you know, really agree with me. I think, I realize when I read a book like yours more than ever that one of the reasons that Titanic stays with us the way it does is I think it it's right on that cusp of <laughs> the best way to describe it. Life looks similar enough to what we know now that we can relate a little bit, yeah. but it was just different enough <laughs> that it seems like a some sort of you know far away land. Yeah. And and I know you know like I mentioned a, a couple because. You you've written um, about 1920s London, right? And you've yeah. written about and the Cottingley Secret, which hey, listeners, I have to tell you the story. So I'll just <laughs> I'll um I'll mention it. We were talking before I hit record, and I want to nerdily um, mention it. I was a bit of a fangirl because when we got on, I told Hazel that um, I was researching her for the pod and to have this interview, and I realized that a few years ago I was in. Uh, Barnes and Noble and picked up one of her other books, The Cottingly Secret, which is this don't know the tale, incredible. It's based on a true story that these two girls claim to have, you know, seen and taken photos of fairies. And if you've never heard of the story, Google it right now and then order Hazel's book because it's so intriguing. But I had picked up that book at a Barnes Noble years ago and read it and adored it and talked about it a lot to friends. And I didn't put two and two together until uh, I sat down to read a little bit more about Hazel that she had written that as well. So I, th- I just love that story. I loved making that connection. And I feel like those things, it's almost like synchronicity that happens to me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but so you, yeah, so I, you know, I really am curious since you have written so much about this era, late 19th, early 20th century. Do you think that that is, you know, I think about this question a lot doing a podcast that focuses so much on this era. And obviously, you know, a lot of the background reading I do is it's just, everything is early 20th century to me. But do you think that's what it is? It's like being on the cusp of modernity that sort of obsesses people for this era? I think you've nailed it completely. I've never thought about it that way. I'm going to steal that phrase for a future event. Oh, please. I I think there's, it's that perfect sweet spot, isn't it? In a way that it feels close enough that it's relatable. But as you say, it's far enough away to be intriguing to us because people dressed differently, the world looked different, um, social niceties were very different. So there's that appeal of an other time, but it mm-hmm. still connects to us. You know, lots of people have descendants who c- they can go back and almost touch events like Titanic through a relative they may have a great great uncle or a great great grandparent from that event or you know the the legacy lives on if you go much further back those those connections start to fade because the, the the family history has been lost perhaps so i think there is that it's that sense of relatability it's a tangibility which makes it more digestible i think because it mm-hmm. it, it could have been us um, people often see, obviously, history through sketchy photographs and shaky newsreel footage. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Recently, we've seen colorized images of the 
wars, those the pictures we've only ever seen in in black and white. Oh. Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson colorized um, a whole set of film from the First World War, and it changed my perspective of that event completely. When you see things in color, it makes it relevant. It makes it present. It makes it now. Um, and we forget, you know, we, of course, people didn't walk around in black and white, you know. And it, I know, but it's easy. To, it's easy to forget. I you yeah. know, actually, um, I know we've ended up mentioning the movie like twelve times, but uh, the the cost. One of the costumers, I read an interview where she was saying that you know they they ordered, they found antique dresses or you know vintage dresses from all over the world and just had them shipped in, even if they weren't in good condition. Just from people's trunks and things and that they were they felt really emotional when they pulled some of these out because they were so vibrantly colored because yeah. you think of you see pictures of of women in this time period and they look like they're just in gray dresses and white yeah. dresses yeah. and that actually they were purples and and that's what she was yeah. saying is you know you <clears throat> excuse me you open these trunks and it's a pink dress or it's a purple dress and so you just color. don't you don't associate the vibrancy with people because we see the black and white yeah it's so true and i think we also because of obviously the tragedy surrounding an event like titanic or lots of the you know lots of historic events that were drawn back to are steeped in tragedy it's a human drama that makes it a, sort of that fascinating link back but of course people weren't always walking around ashen-faced and grief-stricken. You know, there were moments of, of course, humour, of course, love and happiness. And that, again, was what really appealed to me in, in looking back at the passengers who stepped on board Titanic and what were they thinking and doing at that moment before the tragedy unfolded? They were hopeful. They were in love. They were excited girls running about this crazy ship, you know, mm -hmm. winking at a steward. and. You know, it's that fun to these events that we often forget. And and of course, I was really lucky here to go up to when you talk about the color of the dresses, the Titanic exhibition up in Belfast, the museum, um, oh, yes. which yeah. has, you know, replicas of the cabins, of the beds. It has so many of the artifacts that have been brought from the wreck. And, and again, it's just you look at this and you see it so differently. You, you can imagine mm -hmm. being the girls laughing in their little bedrooms and so excited about seeing New York. And it's that, it's that contrast, isn't it? Of all that excitement and hope and the utter devastation that follows. And it, you know, I think if you set out to write a fictional event like that, it would be really stretching the boundaries are oh, come on, you know, maiden voyage, the biggest ship in the world, the best people, and it ends. Oh, yeah, no, it would be considered too far fetched if it were just a novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's it's actually true. I think if I think you're a hundred percent right. I think if Titanic had never happened and you set out that outline for a novel, then you know, your editor, your publisher, you know, would, would You'd be this, stretching this, the limits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's the believability. Yeah. Yeah. Um just do you, you know, just kind of you know geeky Titanic question, but when you were doing research, did, was there anybody else that you came across that just popped up? I mean, what's your other, if you, I mean, obviously like you zeroed in on one of the most important stories, the immigrant experience, the Adder Girl 14, I think is a central Titanic story, but was there anybody else you stumbled upon in your research that maybe is not, you know, really featured in the book, but you just thought, 
wow, this is, you know, this is something about the Titanic story that, you know, interests yeah. me. And just maybe, oh, was there ever a rabbit hole you went down that was you yeah, know, so many, <laughs> you know, and again, it was like, I could have written 10 novels. It uh, just, there's, there's so many different reasons people were there. One of the characters I write, um, actually was inspired. There was an actress and I can never remember her name. Dorothy. Oh, Dorothy Gibson. Dorothy, Dorothy Gibson, Gibson. That's it. Yeah. Who yeah. was in one of the lifeboats and then famously recounted and wore the same dress that she was wearing at the time when a movie was made shortly after mm-hmm. the event for, to replay this. And that her, her story sort of captivated me. And I have a little cameo of her. In um, the book, again. In the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the dogs. I didn't have any idea about the dogs. Um, so many dogs that were taken on onto the ship. I think there's several children's books could be written about them. So many sort of unexpected heroes, I think, that, that came out of it. Of course, you know, we all know about Milvina Dean, the little baby um, that was mm-hmm. sent to somebody in one of the lifeboats. Yeah, I just, but again, those just ordinary people, I think they were often really interesting and then Father Brown, who took the photographs, because, of course, we only see those final photographs of Titanic through mm-hmm. Father Brown, who got off Titanic at Queenstown and being Irish again. So there was a lovely connection there. And a local mm-hmm. stately home had an exhibition of his photographs. Of the photos. Yeah. yeah. So just so many stories and, and so many, as I said at the beginning, so many layers and different stories. Um, which I think is just why we, as you say, we continue to find different aspects. And when I started to think I'm writing a novel about Titanic, am I really going to do this? <laughs> am I am I crazy? Does anybody want to read a novel about Titanic? With yeah. <laughs> Surely this, we all know this story. It's been done. It's been told. And yet it, it hadn't it, and hasn't. You know, there are it so, hasn't been told. There's so many there's books so much. written. Yeah. And I think no, and they're, I, all, I, they're all worth their own space in this huge narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's endlessly um, appealing, I think, to novelists, filmmakers, documentary makers. Um, and here we are in the 110th anniversary year. So who knows what else may be mm-hmm. about to be told. I know. I just, I just occurred to me, you said that how close we're getting to the anniversary. So you'll be at your, so the girl who came home will be at its 10 year mark this mm. spring, right? So that, yeah. and yeah. And this will, this will obviously listeners were recording before, but yeah, this will come out. Was it March? So was it March? To, this will be early March. So was it March 10 years ago? Yeah. So right? I originally, the, the book was originally self-published. Um, so I saw I, that, which yeah. is incredible. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's had a sort of second release in terms of the cover most people will be familiar with and it was picked up by Harper Collins um, and led to my first publishing deal and hit the New York Times bestseller list and all this That's crazy author dream <laughs> stuff happened but the original self-published version used an image from a local Belfast artist uh, Jim McDonald which is a beautiful okay. image and I've just recently actually it only took me the 10 years to order a print of that image so that I can frame oh, it wow. and, and put it on the wall. So nice yeah, it's been a real, a real journey without using a pun for me in terms of becoming a writer. 
And people often ask, you know, which I've written 10 novels, which is your favourite? And you shouldn't have a favourite, but this will always be my, the girl who came home will always be my favourite. Well, you're being your first. And I think, I mean, it's, you know, and like you've, like we've talked about for this whole call, it's just Titanic is, is that evergreen. I mean, you can, I mean, people ask me all the time if I'll run out of episode ideas. And I'm just thinking, I mean, no, I mean, I probably will have to just, stop before I, I'll be, I'll be 80 years old. I'll come back. I'll come back and talk about the dogs. <laughs> you could do a whole episode about the dog. You should write a, um, like a short story or a kid's story about the dog. But no, it's, you know, I, um, just, just the other day I was looking at some women's stories and, um, you know, there's, there, we, we hear a lot about Violet Jessup, for example, but yes. there were other even female crew on board that we never get to hear about. Yeah. And um, and also just, you know, second and, and third class females, for example, there are actually quite a few sources out there. I think that the misconception is that the sources aren't there, but they are for a lot of them. Yeah. And these stories can be told. Well, I the thing it ties in perfectly with everything we've been talking about, but the way that I always sort of end, you know, a conversation is, you know, and I'm for my listeners, maybe they're thinking it's getting repetitive, but I always want to hear people's answer to this is, you know, why do you think, why do you think Titanic is, you know, of all of the ships that we've lost, of all of the tragedies that have befallen, you know, America, in the UK, the world, why just if you had to sum it up after researching and living with it like you have for a while mm. why do you think it is the one that as a society just you know cultural benchmark something we all understand why do you think that is i always am interested in mm. in you know individuals answer to that question especially if they've researched it you yeah. know like someone like you have it's such a great question it's such a big question and i think i think partly it has such a global reach because the passenger manifest had such a global reach mm-hmm. and, and and some of which we're only just starting to understand. And, and I think, as I said, it's, it's that almost unbelievable juxtaposition of human accomplishment and nature coming together to form this mm-hmm. enormous tragedy and played out in such a visceral brutal way and it's like you know you couldn't you couldn't put such beauty and such horror together in many circumstances and and have it be in any way believable and I think that's it isn't it it's just the unimaginable clash of human endeavor and you know so many strides in in machinery and sort of you know this pompous sense of this ship is unsinkable Mm-hmm. And then it sinks. And it, it it's that, I think it's just the juxtaposition and the cruelty of chance that, that played a part for so many people's mm-hmm. stories. And, and that it came at a time before the to tragedies that were yet to come in the two world wars. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's mm-hmm. why I think we just can't quite wrap our heads around you know, the pompous claims of Ismay and the the awful tragedy that happened to people like my little Irish immigrants just trying to make a better life for themselves. It, it's it's good and bad, isn't it? It's the classic story. It's, you know, the, the dark side and the, the good side. It's 
black and white and it's it's, it's almost there. set up it's almost like you said it's it's perfect for a book because it is almost set up with all of the classic archetypes you would yeah. ever yeah you would it's ever imagine you know, you've the villains, you've the the, the villains, you've got the innocent. <laughs> you know, I mean, and 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 I think a lot of people. I think there's a new era of Titanic historiography and in historical fiction brewing, which is you know women forefronted, you know immigrants forefronted, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people who've read about Titanic their whole lives, but maybe started reading back in an era when it was more the sort of white male narrative. Yeah, um, I think a lot of them are are just constantly learning new things. I think, you know, we just are now scratching the surface with women and immigrants being forefronted in the story. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we're about to be on, you know, talk about the cusp of an era. Hopefully yeah. we're just about to be an entirely new era with yeah. how people read about Titanic, which I think is why your book is so important. And I, like I said, I'm really, I'm glad it was my first Titanic historical fiction because I think, you know, the heart and the soul of the ship was Irish in many ways, you know, it's, yeah. it's the connection, you know, it's where it was built and I think the story of the Adderall 14, I think you did just a perfect job of of fictionalizing them while also incorporating elements of their story. I think in historical fiction, obviously, I've never done it myself, but it seems to me it's a, a, a skill to sort of, you know, skate on just on that line of, you know, what to include, what not to, um, fictionalizing characters versus using real people. You know, it is fiction, but I think in terms of Titanic historiography and the cultural history of how we understand the ship, I think books like yours is, I mean, it's, you know, incredibly important. And I hope that, you know, people that have just now discovered it will also discover some of your other writing as well, because like we talked about, you've written in this era. So listeners, if you're someone who, you know, likes to stay in this general era, there are a lot of Hazel's books that I I think will really interest you. And then also, as you mentioned, you've kind of pushed forward and written about the world wars as well. Um, that is there. So you have a, you have a website and is that just hazelgaynor.com? Is it that- is. Yeah. Keep it simple. Yeah. So hazelgaynor.com where people can go and look up the backlist. And there's always a bit of a sort of history behind each of the books as to how I came to write it, the, mm-hmm. the real history underpinning it. Um, and people can sign up to my newsletter there. Newsletter. So That's right. We were talking about that. Yeah. So I'm trying and get- to, trying to um, sort of spend this 10 year anniversary year looking back a bit on the books that have come since the girl who came home and mm-hmm. interestingly are leading me to my next book which will be another tragedy at sea um which seems oh, to be quite okay. full circle so hope to be able to share more about that very soon I'm, I'm really excited again another really human tragedy story but laced with resilience and endurance and hope and a different story of an event we think we know, but we haven't heard this side of the story yet. I really encourage listeners to, yeah, definitely check out your back catalog. I think there's a lot of overlap in what, you know, Titanic people, quote unquote, was kind of what we call ourselves, (laughs) um, you know, are interested in, in terms of what you've written about. And I really, I can't thank you enough. This has been great. I think, like I've said 20 times, but I do think it's so important, you know, female voices, in Titanic, whether it's, you know, those who are writing about it or those who are being written about are just absolutely crucial. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, your book was a big moment for me in understand, I think for a lot of listeners in understanding, um, like you said, this sort of 
the sort of quieter moments on the ship and the sort of, you know, break open. If you imagine Titanic as kind of a diorama, you know, sort of break it open and look inside to see some of those smaller spaces and what was going on. Um, And yeah, it's just really incredible. So thank you so much for writing the book and then also for, you know, coming to talk about it. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much. I mean, this is, as I say, 10 years on from first researching and writing this book. And I, I'm just as excited today as I was then to talk about the book, to share um, this space with somebody who's equally fascinated by that event. And it's a really special thing, isn't it? It's a really great way to connect all of us with all our stories of of that event and and other events. So thank you. I'm so grateful for your kind words and and thank you for inviting me to, to talk today. 